0: We're going to look in the coming weeks here in this Christmas season at a handful of psalms leading us up to Christmas morning. If you're looking for Psalm 95 in the Bible, that's right there in front of you. It's on page 591. Now, I am a child of the 90s. I turned 12 in the decade. I turned 18. I turned 21. Middle school, high school, and college for me all happened in the 1990s. 90s. And so if a song comes on that was popular on the radio, I can sing along to all the dumb pop music and grunge music of the 1990s. I have wasted hours of my life on the dumb movies that came out during that decade. I've even spent and wasted some of my children's time by making them rewatch the things that I loved when I was that age. And so this Christmas, I want us to all become children of the 90s. Okay, now not the 1990s, the Psalm 90s. All right, that's a really bad dad joke. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of buildup to get to the, uh, the Psalm 90. No, but my point here is that from Psalm 90 to 99, these are the enthronement psalms, the psalms which say, the Lord reigns. And so we're going to look at four of these psalms this month. And and we picked these psalms because Psalms 96, 97, and 98 are historically the songs that you read on Christmas morning as part of the liturgical calendar of the church. Now, that makes sense to us when we think about Psalm 98. Now, you might not right off the top of your head know the psalm, but you know the song that Isaac Watts wrote based on Psalm 98, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And so we're going to end with that psalm on Christmas morning. But we also on Christmas morning, historically as in, in church history, read Psalms 96 and 97. But today we begin with Psalm 95, primarily because it comes before Psalm 96, and I needed a fourth psalm to get us through. But, but what Psalm 95 does is actually helps make the connection to these Christmas psalms from our Exodus sermon series. So if you've been with us this fall, we've been in the Old Testament book of Exodus where God rescued his people and saved them out of Pharaoh's hand. And Psalm 95 is an enthronement psalm like the other psalms here in the 90s, but it's also a psalm that points us backwards with a warning, back to the history of Israel. So that's where we begin this morning. Psalm 95, which helps set the context for this Christmas sermon series, but also provides us a connection to what we've just read in the book of Exodus. Listen as I read from the Word of God, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand, are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, As you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let me bow in prayer as we listen to the word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminders in this Christmas season of the beauty and the power of what you have done for us. That you sent Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, to be our rescuer, our Savior. That he gave his life that we might live with you for eternity. Father, for those that hear this message of salvation anew for the first time, Give them today the faith to believe. Lord, for those of us that are reminded of things we have known for years, Lord, give us the, the joy and the freedom, the confidence to follow you, to obey you, to trust fully in you. God in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Matten took his nine-year-old grandson with him, to a classical music performance of the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston a few years ago. Okay, yeah, it's kind of a risk to take a child to a classical music performance. And so we can imagine granddad's anxiety when he received an email the next day, sent to every one of the ticket holders, trying to identify the audience member who shouted at the end of a Mozart piece. Because you and I know there are unwritten rules for when you go to a music performance. Even if you and I aren't musically educated enough to know where we are, wait, is this one of the clapping or one of the no clapping times, right? So you kind of look around and wait till somebody who you think can read music knows where you're at. But shouting, all of us know, is not a generally accepted response at a classical music performance except in this instance. The president of the music society sent out the email because he was so moved emotionally by the child's response. At the end of a, of a piece of funeral music, a little voice took over the theater. Wow! The musician explains, there's a sense of wonder in that Wow! And so they wanted to track down Granddad and find the child. They set up a a private cello performance for him, and he got to come back later to a rehearsal of the entire orchestra to see how each of the instruments works. See, fellow audience members, musicians, were impacted by the the joyous, spontaneous response of this child. But his grandfather says he was more surprised than anyone. His grandson lives with autism and is described as nonverbal. Granted, it says he just doesn't do that. Respond verbally. Usually he's in a world by himself. Until the beauty of the music pulled a response out of him. A loud shout that rippled through the entire orchestra hall. Wow! Psalm 95 should create that kind of response from each one of us. A not-so-Presbyterian response that actually interrupts the worship service and says, wow, the God of the universe invites me into relationship with him? Wow, the God who rescued his people is the God who wants to know me? See, sometimes we need the interruptions to remind us how significant what we speak about, what we hear, and what we sing truly is. Now, you heard it even as I read Psalm 95, that, that, that there are two really distinct sections of the psalm. The, the first section, the first seven verses, or at least the first six and a half verses, are a call to worship. Familiar to us that, that we read these not just on a day like today, but we often use Psalm 95 as a call to worship at other times during the year. It was the call to worship in last night's ordination service for the Reverend Jonathan Hatt now the new assistant pastor at Hope Presbyterian Church, just across the state line. But usually when we read it as a call to worship, we stop at verse 7. Because there's a radical change of tone from the end of verse 7 through the end. The beginning is, is is a call to worship, an invitation to give praise to God, and then it turns. But today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. There's a... Call to worship and a word of warning. A warning against wandering away from God. First, let's look at this call to worship at the beginning of the Psalm. It it actually comes to us, it, it, it's a threefold repetition of the command that's given by God that we are to worship Him. It comes in, in verse one come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. It's repeated for us in verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It's, it's echoed again in verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Three times in, in, in these verses, well really six times because of the, the parallelism and the repetition in each of those verses, we are told, we are commanded to give worship to God because of who he is and what he has done for us. And you and I need an invitation if we were to come into God's presence. We don't, we don't have the right to just wander up to him however we would want, whenever we would want, because as sinners who have rebelled against God, it would only be at God's invitation that we could come in worship and not receive judgment. And so the psalm repeats it, come. Let us come, come. Let us bow down in worship because God is, verse one tells us, the rock of our salvation. Yahweh, the God who loves us and cares for us, is the, the certain and sure protection for us. He is our rock. He is the one who saved us, who rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt. He is the God who, who provides the, the, the punishment of sacrifice for our sins, that our sins can be forgiven. Verse three describes God. He is the great God, the great king above all gods. God is the the greatest person you could imagine. He is the greatest person you would ever meet. He is is greater than you you could comprehend. He's greater than any god. He would be the king of all the gods if the other gods were real. He is the great God It's a description for us, one commentator says, of God's lordship over his people, but his lordship over the whole world. His authority extends everywhere. Look at verses four and five. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. As if God is upholding with his hand the mountains of the earth and the the valleys that 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 we would find, the the deepest parts you could even describe, the depths of the earth. The the sea belongs to God, because he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Everything belongs to God, whether you go to the heights or down to the depths, whether you're on the sea or you're on dry land, it is all God's because he made all of it. And and the the language there of of the mountain peaks and the depths of the earth, it it describes that contrast of the, the height and depth But it's also, we're reminded in the Old Testament, the depths of the earth, well, the depths belong to Molech, the devil god of the Canaanites. And where would the Canaanites go to worship Baal? They would go up to the high places, to the heights of the mountains, the places where you would go to worship false gods, where the nations are tempted to put their trust in someone else. God holds those in his hand He can dust them off because He is the great God above all gods. But you and I, you and I, we belong to God. Verse seven says, or verse six commands us to kneel before the Lord our Maker. Verse seven says, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture. We belong to God. We are His. He is our God. We are the flock under His care. He is the one who made us. He is the shepherd who cares for us. God is, as a commentator of of another century says, above all gods as king, above all things as creator, and above his people as shepherd. And of course, when we hear the language of shepherd in the Psalms, we're reminded of of the most famous of the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm. The Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Or as Christians who read that language that, that we are the people of God's pasture, we are his, the flock under his care. When we think of that language of, of shepherd, we of course think of the, the New Testament description that Jesus gives of his own ministry. The Jesus in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. To be known by God and loved by God is a blessing because Jesus is the Son of God, the Good Shepherd who gave his life for us. And so, so this psalm should stir within us. The, these psalms here in, in the 90s of the, of the Psalter should stir within us that response that says, wow, that's who God is? He, he loved me enough. He cares for me. He's the creator. He's the king, and yet he knows me. And yet the psalm doesn't end there. Even if that's where we normally end our reading of it, the psalm continues with a warning. Another pastor says of this psalm, Worship without obedience is a mere sham. To worship God but not obey God, it's a sham, it's foolishness, it's empty. See, because you could go through the motions of worship, you could. Go through the postures. You could, you could kneel, you could read the words, you could listen to the songs, but it's but it's like Christmas music. It's got the tune, but none of the truth. The, the message has been pulled out, and you can even sing the right words without really thinking about what they mean. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And so the psalm comes with a warning for us, a warning against wandering. At the end of verse 7, the the tone of the psalm changes. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Now, if you've been with us this fall, then, then those place descriptions, Meribah and Massa, will be familiar to you. Because as the people were rescued out of Egypt, God took them through the wilderness to take them to Sinai so that he could give them his law so that he could take them into the promised land. But what happened when the people were in the wilderness? They began to grumble and complain. It got so bad that they said, Moses, why did you bring us up out of here so that we and our children will die of thirst? And God miraculously, graciously provides for the people that out of a rock in the wilderness will flow water to rescue these people. But that place is given the name Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. Massa means testing, Meribah means quarreling. That was the attitude of their hearts. And sadly, this isn't the only time during the wilderness, when they're in the wilderness, that they will have the same response. Even though God has daily provided for their needs by providing manna for them every day. He has provided water for them in the wilderness. It it, it comes around again in Numbers 20. When the people complain, they are there again, and they, they ask the same question, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place where there is no water to drink? And God, again, miraculously provides water from the rock. And in Numbers 20, we're reminded of the the sinfulness of the people. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord. So even though they had seen what God had done, even though they had seen God rescue them from Egypt, God knocked down the gods of Egypt with the plagues. Even though they'd seen the, the, wall, the waters of, of the Red Sea separated into, into walls so that they walked across on dry land, they still tested God. They still quarreled with God. So that Psalm 95 says then, the, the judgment which came upon them, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways so i declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest the judgment which was brought on the people for their unfaithfulness fell upon an entire generation so that instead of moving from sinai directly into the promised land they're they left in the wilderness for a generation for 40 years until that generation would perish never to enter the rest of the promised land that god had offered to them, and their sin is brought to us as a warning. See, it's not merely brought to the, the people in the Old Testament as a warning that they, went on their way up to the temple in Jerusalem, should be reminded of what happened at, at Meribah and Massah. No, the New Testament makes clear that this is a warning not just for them but for us. The New Testament book of Hebrews takes two chapters as basically an extended explanation of what happened in Psalm 95. Now, it, it skips right over the, the easy to understand part of the call to worship and just goes straight to the warning. And so you can flip with me, this would be very, uh, toward the very back of your Bibles, to Hebrews chapters three and four. It's, it's an extended meditation on Psalm 95. We begin in Hebrews three, verse seven, which starts with a quotation, which comes from Psalm 95, verse seven. So in Hebrews 3, verse 7, we, we hear this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger They shall never enter my rest. And then Hebrews 3, verse 12 makes the application to us today, to those who are Christians. Hebrews 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, Psalm 95, in the midst of calling us to worship, stops to give us a warning because worship alone is insufficient. Just singing the right words is insufficient. God wants a change in our hearts, a change in our disposition toward him, that our hearts would no longer go astray, but that we would know who he is and what he has done. And, and this warning to us, while, while it sounds so sharp in Psalm 95, such a change in contrast that, that some commentators look at it and say, wait, do we number these incorrectly? Should these be two separate psalms? Should it be Psalm 95, maybe part one, and Psalm 95, verse two? Or let's just make it Psalm 96 and then renumber everything after that because they can't be the same psalm. But no, the, the, they're connected because in calling us to worship, God is gracious then to give us the warning that don't harden your hearts, but turn away from your sin, turn toward God, understand what he has done for you. it would be too easy to just come into a worship service and pretend like things are fine. To sort of figure out, wait, what are the cultural expectations? Is this a clapping or no clapping time? I'll just do what's culturally appropriate, and then I'll move on my way. Maybe not even trying to convince others of the truth that we think we're, we're real worshipers, but, but trying to convince ourselves without ever really examining our own hearts, Because the biggest problem that you and I have when we come into worship is not what happens around us. It's it's not merely the distractions that we bring with us, it's not merely our our preferences where we say, well, I don't like that song, or, or that music was too loud, or I wish we sang more songs from my childhood. See, the biggest barrier to worship is none of those things, it's me. I'm the biggest barrier, my own heart is the biggest barrier for me to, to really worship God. Our hearts hardened against God, perhaps, perhaps even by familiarity of having been here Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, where we just say, oh, yep, God's grace. He's really good. Whoop-de-doo. Maybe this is all the more dangerous at Christmas, where the nostalgia of Christmas just threatens to overwhelm its message. And I'm not saying the nostalgia is bad. I, I actually think it's, it's good that, that you and I have neighbors who this time of year think, oh, if I get invited to church, I would go because this is sort of a churchy kind of year that if, if you take an invitation, you can still do it today and say, come with me at 6 o'clock tonight. It's, the music is going to be great and, and I, think you'd, I think you'd be encouraged by what you hear tonight. I, I, I think the nostalgia surrounding Christmas is good But sometimes in the busyness of the season, among the cultural expectations that have perfect cookies and ugly sweaters and music and lyrics that just seem to float right past us, we miss what is really being said, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth for you to give his life for you. The King above all gods is held in his mother's arms. See, Psalm 95 forces us to consider our own attitudes toward God. It it forces us to ask, how will I listen to this psalm? Will I listen as someone who can listen with obedience, to hear the truth, to expect God to bring about change in me, to turn away from the hardness of my heart and find forgiveness through what God has done for me? And and Hebrews 13 continues, or Hebrews 3, uh, verse 13, continues this application for us. After we read in verse 12, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. From that warning comes encouragement. Verse 13 of Hebrews 3, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The today of Psalm 95 is today. Today, today, like right now, today. Psalm 95 isn't only about what happened then, but it's God saying today if you hear my voice do not harden your hearts. It's another gracious invitation from God to come and worship, a, a warning to turn away from our sins. This psalm is for us today. And Psalm 95 includes a warning, but it includes a promise. A promise that we saw at the end of Psalm 95 in the judgment against the people who did not enter the promised land. But, but Hebrews four tells us that the rest that they were offered is offered to us. Now, the, the generation that rebelled against God was not allowed to enter into the promised land. But the promised land itself was, wasn't meant to be just the, the physical dirt that they, they got their feet on top of, the place where they planted the, the, their crops and where they built their homes. No, the promised land in the, in the book of Exodus was meant to be a picture of God's coming kingdom, the promised land, which is still future for us, capital P, capital L, promised land. Heaven itself, where, where we don't look for a, a geopolitical entity in the Middle East today, but where we await the coming of the heavenly Jerusalem down to earth. The new heavens and new earth, when God will be right here with us. His presence right with us. That, that promised land, we're told, is the rest the sabbath rest that the people are waiting for when all the work of all of history is done just as god rested on the sabbath the seventh day of creation so there is coming a future sabbath rest which will last forever when the work of salvation has been accomplished and hebrews 4 takes psalm 95 It says God warned them that they would never enter his rest. They received punishment. But you and I, you and I still have the promise of this eternal rest given to us today. Look at at Hebrews 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The warning of Psalm 95 is don't walk a path that leads to your destruction. Don't harden your hearts, but come. Kneel, bow down before God. Humble yourself before the great King, the one who loves you, the one who promises you rest which will last forever. And eternal rest awaits those who belong to God. His sheep will find pasture. He meets our needs. We know the depth of God's love because Jesus, our Savior, came to earth. We, We are now free to worship God as he truly is because we know the depth of his love. And we are empowered to follow him in obedience because our sins have been forgiven. Psalm 95 calls us to worship, and it warns us of the dangers of a hard heart. But the psalm points us in hope toward the rest which God will provide. And Hebrews 4, having having spent two chapters reflecting on what does Psalm 95 mean for us today, it ends with a a great word of encouragement. Listen to, to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Psalm 95 calls us to worship because of the greatness of God, his care for us. And Christmas is the reminder of how deep God's love is. He sent a Savior who sympathizes with us, who is tempted as we are, who shares our weaknesses and yet was without sin. The Savior who could give himself as our perfect sacrifice, the one who has now gone through and entered the heavens, bringing the eternal rest of God, guaranteeing it for us. Psalm 95 warns us that we face the dangers of our own hard hearts. But we can approach God with confidence because Jesus has already entered our heavenly rest. Our salvation is secure. We can worship God and we can obey God because we've received mercy, we have received help in our time of need. And so come, come, Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for interrupting our patterns of worship with the reminders of your greatness and goodness. Lord, I pray that today would be a day in which we stop and and say wow and we consider how deep your love is for us. Lord, work in our hearts even now that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us the faith to believe, that we would understand who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that you would use the, the concert this evening, the worship that, that, that we gather to, to bring to you, to reach our neighbors with the hope of the gospel to embolden us in, the, in, our, in our life of, of gospel obedience following Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We come in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your invitation into your presence to worship you. And so we come because of Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.